The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Frank Latuka, Olin and Angela, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for November 13th, 2020. Hey! Is this outed a little early? A little early? Normally on the East Coast, you, you get the Friday episode kind of into the evening hours sometimes. Usually gets out around like 3 o'clock or so West Coast, so 6, sometimes 7, 8 by the time that your, your, your podcatcher of choice updates. But now, ah, now, totally there for you. All day, showed up in the middle of the night like a, like a politics thief that is a reverse thief and leaves things for you instead, instead of taking them. Uh, we're going to start off with, with a story that came from the greatest state of the Union, Florida, it is so, so, so South Florida. I'm just warning you. It's so South Florida that by the time I'm done telling you it, you're going to have a real estate license and know somebody in a multi-level marketing scheme. All right? That's how Florida is. It's so Florida. We got your mailbag. And most importantly... We've got a great, great interview with somebody that I am uh, so pleased has, has come across my radar, Musa Algarbi. He's a sociologist at Columbia, but is, uh, I think, a fascinating thinker specifically about the demographics that make up our electorate. And he wrote a lot about them before the election. He now has kind of confirmed his data uh, from that, but specifically the idea that the erosion of working class minority support in the Demo- in, in the, the Democratic Party is not something that was necessarily hyper accelerated by Trump. It did grow, but there are trends here that are undeniable. And part of the reason why we might not have focused on them as much is because of how we in the media and in academia, try to study it, and that might be unique to Trump. Great interview. Highly recommend you listen to all of it. But first... We read now from... An investigation done by Channel 10, the ABC affiliate in South Florida, WPLG. Uh, fun fact, named after Philip Leslie Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. It's a fun little story behind that. It's not really fun. It involves his suicide. 
I don't know why I said fun. I immediately regret. Anyway, uh, for those of you in South Florida who didn't know that WPLG was named after the publisher, the famous publisher of the Washington Post, there, there you go. Let's get to the story. Why would candidates for Florida State Senate do no campaigning, no fundraising, have no issue platforms, nor make any effort to gain votes. Local 10 News has found evidence to suggest that three such candidates uh, in three Florida Senate district races, two of them in Miami-Dade County, were shill candidates whose presence in the races were meant to siphon votes from the Democrat. Comparisons of the no-party candidates' public campaign records shows similarities and connections that suggest that they are all linked by funding from the same dark money donors as part of an elaborate scheme to upset voting patterns. In one of those races, District 37, a recount is underway because the spread between the Democratic uh, and Republican candidate is only 31 votes. The third party candidate received more than 6,300 votes. That third party candidate is Alexis Rodriguez, who has the same last name as the Democratic incumbent, Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez. The Republican challenger is Eliana Garcia. Now, if you haven't picked up on what this is, so some dark money groups funded a sham candidate, somebody that wasn't going to run, wasn't going to... Uh, wasn't going to put their face on anything. Literally, they're there to get ballot access. And then when you're voting, you say, oh, no, 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 I like Rodriguez. I want to vote for Rodriguez. And you might accidentally hit the wrong Rodriguez. Now, to be fair, in South Florida, you are more likely to accidentally hit the wrong Rodriguez. There's a lot of Rodriguez's running around in South Florida. But this is specifically designed to exploit election day anxiety where you just screw up and hit the wrong button. Let's get back to the story. Alexis Rodriguez falsified his address on his campaign filing form last June. The couple who now live at the Palmetto Bay address say that they've been repeatedly harassed since then by people looking for Rodriguez who hasn't lived there in five years. We're, we're only getting more South Florida by the second. Just, I mean, let me just say this before we go any further. Everybody in South Florida's got a scam. Some of them are legal. Some of them are extra legal. But you can't go more than six months without somebody having some kind of plan that's going to make them a lot of money really quick. And that's where I made a joke about real estate. Real estate's one of them. Everybody just wants to because homes flip uh, a lot in South Florida. Everyone just, just assumes like, oh, I'm going to get a real estate license. Just kind of do it on the side. Party promoting, drugs. Everyone's got some kind of scam. So Local 10 visits Rodriguez Place of Business on Tuesday. Where Red, uh, Rodriguez then proceeds to lie about his identity, pretending that he's his own business partner. 
Rodriguez shed little light on his sudden candidacy in the District 37 race and lack of fundraising in campaigning. So he gets busted by the local television station of, hey, why have you not done anything in this race? Do you know that you might have just kind of thrown a monkey wrench in this? And also, who put you up to it? Because obviously you don't really want the job. And he hits him with, it wasn't me. Oh, no, 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 no. You're thinking about the other Rodriguez. I'm not him. Sorry. You just missed him. He's out at Las Patas. Local 10 began investigating the candidacy because of a hunch by executive producer Natalie Morena de Varona last month. She was collecting candidates' headshots for election broadcast graphics and was curious why a candidate was nowhere to be found and not returning phone calls. Normally, that's all you want as a candidate running is to be called by the local television station. No return calls. So here's where the plot thickens. A search of campaign documents filed by Rodriguez led, leads to a money trail and campaign finance connections with other no-party third candidates in Florida Senate District 9 in Central Florida and District 39 in Miami-Dade. Now, again, this is all for the state Senate, so not exactly high stakes, but still, elected offices. The other Miami candidate was an 81-year-old uh, Celso Alfonso, a retiree who named the woman he calls his wife as his campaign treasurer. She owns a day spa and the home where they found Alonzo on Tuesday afternoon. He, too, lied about his identity at first before finally ad admitted to being the candidate. Just so you know, Al South Florida, like the initial thing is somebody rolls up on you and says, hey, did you do that thing? Oh, no, man. I'm not even that person. I'm with you. We're all trying to find out who did this. He, uh, Alfonso comes clean, says uh, he has a lifelong dream to be a public service. He filed on his own and that nobody assisted him. But. When you look at how Alfonso and Rodriguez filed, they've got some similarities, according to News 10. Both filed as no-party-affiliated candidates, yet both had been recently registered Republicans. Both qualified as candidates on the same day, June 12, 2020, by paying a qualifying fee. Both listed Gmail addresses with identical patterns, first initials, last name, and district number, then 2020. Both list one single contribution to their campaign. $2,000 in self-loans, presumably to pay their filing fee. Both candidates' support appear to come from the same political action committee, Our Florida, that has no previous political contributions or expenditures listed. It is in the pack that paid for the campaign flyers for the candidates as done by the same Claremont, Florida, Mailhouse Advanced Impressions. But that's pretty much where the similarities end. In fact, the money trail goes cold once they find that the PACs, our Florida PACs only contributor is an entity called Proclivity, and they can't find anybody that actually runs Proclivity. It's probably because that is a shell on shell on shell, and although Local 10 can't say it, your boy Jerbs will speculate that this is what we like to call in the business Classic rat thing. 
I know it might be difficult to put together exactly what I said there with the censorship, but rat effing. It's what's known as running a dummy candidacy or a dummy organization that's literally just there to roil the waters between a fairly heads-up, one-on-one kind of race. And that seems to be exactly what they did here. They just found people with names that were similar to the others, propped them up so they could get ballot access, and then walked away with none the wiser on exactly which dark money organization tried to aid the Republicans in these state Senate seats. Now, I don't know for sure who did this. Nobody really will. But when you get to that level, that level, it's got to be spiteful. I, I almost think this is too spiteful for party politics. This has gone national because it's a Democratic-Republican thing. But I'm going to assure you that there is some like Tallahassee rivalry that is that is on display here. Somebody didn't vote for the right thing. Like, there's there's no way that it's just these three people that are running. This has to be a targeted uh, a, a campaign against them, and and it doesn't look like it's going to work. Although the the first Rodriguez race that we talked to uh, that we talked about is very very close, and it does look like like uh, Elena Garcia. The Republican will win, but just amazing. Just amazing. So, Florida. Politics. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. If you would like to send us an email, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. James writes, hi, Justin. I've been listening to your show since around 2015. And I've recently become a Patreon of both you and Andrew Heaton. Oh, sweetheart. One thing in the news recently is the resignation of Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept due to alleged censorship by editors. I was hoping I could get your thoughts on this. Much love from Yukon, Canada, James. So I would love to talk to Glenn Greenwald. I think that he has been a a very interesting and important journalist over the last 15 years. He's hard to pin down ideologically in terms of the stuff that he writes about, or at least has in the past, but falls into that Matt Taibbi wild card uh, uh, kind of form, which I'm, I, I think is good. You need wild cards in journalism. The one thing that I would wonder about is that, you know, you've seen the Andrew Sullivans and the Barry Weiss and the Glenn Greenwalds all leave their respective media perches over the last six months and they have all written similar things about how the newsroom is no longer ideologically safe for people that aren't following a very rigid progressive orthodoxy and I don't work in a newsroom so I I don't know if they're telling the truth or not all I know is this the money's also drying up for a lot of these places maybe not the New York Times but advertising's not in a good place so if you were ever going to cut high-profile, yet not universally popular people or make their lives difficult, I think there would be natural pressures that might bring that on. Not to say that, and, and, and not to say that they're lying about the stuff that they're writing about, but these 
The money getting tighter might be part of why these issues have exacerbated. D. Rich of Pullman, Virginia writes, The Federalist has an article that claims Joe Biden did better in Milwaukee County than President Obama did in 2008 and much better than Hillary did four years ago. As you pointed out, Biden didn't have people on the ground for much of the summer. Before the election, some polls had Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin. There was no reason to have a high turnout uh, for him to spend that much time there, yet he got an estimated 84% voter turnout in Milwaukee. I don't think pr Trump can prove voter tampering, but I find the voting trends to be statistically unlikely. What's your opinion on it? Well, uh, a D, because you are asking me my opinion uh, uh, of it, I'm going to assume that you are not a statistician, and I will say that I am not one either. I read a similar article today from a conservative source talking about uh, Cobb and Gwinnett County, uh, that, that there were similar voting patterns there in Georgia. While I... Can't help but say, if you look at the raw vote numbers across the country, Joe Biden did better than any presidential candidate ever in history. So I can understand that he had more votes than both Obama or Hillary, if he's going to lay claim to that title. But I don't know. And to be honest, uh, I think whether or not these are uh, statistical outliers it, the onus is on the challenger to prove malfeasance. So I don't know how much time it, it, it behooves us to spend on it, but it is something to remember. Rishi writes, I would uh, quibble slightly with a point you made. I believe in the Patreon-only PX3 post that the uh, Donald Trump White House should take credit for the Pfizer vaccine progress. Pfizer didn't take any warp speed money, and they would have worked on a vaccine with either Donald Trump or Clinton's White House. I'll give Donald Trump that his fight against COVID is almost entirely pushing vaccines, but I think he can take as much credit for Pfizer as the uh, Amy Coney Barrett SCOTUS nomination. It just ha He just happened to be president's when circumstances made it so. So I got a few people that, that wrote in about uh, or correcting me about Pfizer saying they didn't take warp speed money. True, technically, but they didn't take warp speed money because they already had money from Health and Human Services. So it, it to me, everything that falls under the let's prepay for vaccines so we can push them through as fast as possible Trump should get some level of credit for, even if it's just because he was president and he did the thing then. That's what presidents mostly get credit for. They, they rarely get credit for inventing new things. They get credit for doing things that they should be doing. So, yeah, I, I think he, you know, Rishi, I kind of agree with your point that he should get as much credit as he does the, the Supreme Court nomination, but he's going to get a lot of credit for the Supreme Court nomination. It happened. Tim writes, This may be a semantic difference, but it always felt wrong to me when you predicted this election would be close. You based this on fundamentals, primarily that the nation is divided. None of the polling pre-election or most of the other fundamentals, economy, approval rate, and COVID bore that out, and neither did the election itself. The popular vote looks to be around 4 to 5% in Biden's column, not a landslide, and not, but not close. 
and a 70 to 90 vote deficit in the Electoral College, not a landslide and not close. Of course, some states were close, but that would have been the case even in a plus 10 Biden landslide where Texas and Florida would have potentially been a tight Biden win or a 2 to 3% Trump win where Minnesota and Nevada probably would have been Trump wins. In most scenarios, some states, probably many, will be close. But saying states will or were close is not the same thing as saying the election would be or was. Says you, Tim. That's exactly what I mean when I say the election's close because that's how the election is determined. I don't look at popular vote ever, 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 ever. I also spent the last four years discussing the 2016 election as very close because if you added up the margin of victory in the key states that Hillary would have needed to win by, it wasn't all that much. And it won't be that much for Biden here either. So if we're going to consider 2016 close, which I do, then in my mind, you have to consider 2020 close. The not close version of this election would have been Biden winning Florida, Biden flipping Texas, Biden winning Ohio. Those didn't happen. It's set up very similar to 2016. There were a few states that were going to decide this. And they wound up deciding it. That's it. That's where I say close. And I'm willing to stand on that. I don't know when. So, I mean, like, is everybody now just going to say that it was a blowout for Trump in 2016? Is that is that what we're all, are we all just going to agree that it was a blowout? If everybody agrees that 2016 was a blowout for Trump, then I'm, I'm more likely to say that 2020 was a blowout for Biden. Tim writes, do you, what do you think the tactic for both parties will be in Georgia? Could it really be that people will talk about gasp the issues for once? Republicans can talk about how they need the Senate to stop everything Biden will do. The Democrats will talk about the things that they will do that'll be great for Georgians if the Democrats control both the House and the Senate. Politics about issues. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Uh, I don't think so, Tim. I, I tend to think this is going to be about, I mean, I guess technically issues. It's going to be about court packing. It's going to be about Senate expansion. And it's going to be Warnock running a very progressive campaign and Ossoff running a very moderate campaign and banking that lightning can strike twice in Georgia and they can similarly have massive, massive, massive turnout the likes of which we just saw over the last few weeks. Joe writes, Now that the election's over, I feel like my political anxiety is worse, and I did not expect this. With Trump refusing to concede and pushing conspiracy theories of voter fraud, he has eroded faith in the democratic system and a large portion of this electorate. In my opinion, this is the worst thing he's done in his entire presidency, and I feel like this is how we're on the road to a long-term autocrat. Please tell me I'm overreacting. Joe, you're overreacting, but you're not alone. Uh, I had a, a very, very, very close friend who might be listening right now that was texting me very specifically a similar uh, uh, tenor of, of mood. Donald Trump is a uniquely loud individual. Nothing that is happening right now is particularly 
novel. We've seen versions of this before. We might not have seen it as loud as it has been, but it is yet another weird chapter of a very weird election, a very weird year that we've had because of coronavirus. That being said, we've survived a party calling a president illegitimate before. Bush got it for eight years. Hillary Clinton spent uh, uh, the last four years discussing how she didn't believe that Trump was a legitimate president. We've had other sitting members of Congress say the same thing. Ultimately, whether or not these people respect each other, they do need to work with each other. That, to me, is the larger problem. Is that we are so pendulum swingy on whether or not this kind of stuff is either morally justified or eroding the very fabric of our nation that it's kind of lost a little bit of its meaning. And it's become a hiding place for politicians who want to not do anything. Like, you know, buoy the nation with coronavirus money. Joe, I, I don't think that we are on the path to a long-term autocrat. I do think that Donald Trump will concede and it will likely come after whatever this Georgia audit's going to be, which has to be done by November 27th. Joe Biden will assume office and Donald Trump can go back to being a very loud person on television. Will your anxiety spike because he might run again in 2024? Likely. But I don't believe that we're on the knife's edge. And if we do fall in to a violent coup, well, Joe, I'll owe you a Coke. Stewart writes, I heard you reference the Republicans as the party of the working class and the Democrats as the upper class. As an iPhone developer for a large bank, I am a blue-collar worker. I don't own the company. I don't cut checks like the VP. I'm just a cog in the wheel doing as I'm told. It's pretty clear all my other blue-collar workers are Democrats, too. And the executives probably lean Republican if they want their tax cuts. Republicans kowtow to racists and the religious to take advantage of them. Us real blue-collar workers will fight to give them their rights, whether they vote for it or not. Stuart, I'm very excited for you to listen to this interview coming up. Very very excited for you to listen to this interview coming up. That being said, let me just clear this up. I'm not saying that the Republicans are the party of the working class. I'm saying that Republicans are actively trying to rebrand themselves as the party of the working class. Marco Rubio, of all people, came out and said it. Once the, the, the heir to the neocon empire, the young Jeb Bush saying that he needs to be of uh, the the party needs to be more grassroots rejecting of big money interest populist party. Peter writes, "Welcome to the first days of the Trump 2024 campaign. Are you trying to drive up anxiety, Peter? People are nervous here. Calm down, Peter." Scott writes, "It makes me uncomfortable to have to say that I only developed interest in the history of the United States politics because of Trump." Thanks for the history lessons on the podcast. And he's, he wrote this in to raise the dead, by the way. Now the USA can begin repairing the structural damage and building its international reputation. We here in Australia adopt many aspects of U.S. culture. 
food, lifestyle. But the USA model of Democratic Republic, no way we'll pick that up, LOL. If we ever do convert to a proper republic, the USA has written the definitive textbook on how not to do it. I think someday everyone outside the USA is going to appreciate that. Wishing all rational thinking USA people better times, Scott from Perth. Perth, Australia. Ah, I always love it when people around the world are downloading this. Although I do have to say this to you, Scott, that whenever we get scathing uh, critiques of the U.S. from outside the U.S., I can't help but think of there's, there's a great Mad Men meme, and the meme is this younger guy on the elevator of the, of the office building that they were in. And he's looking at Don Draper, the main character, strapping John Hamm, main character. And uh, the younger guy says, I feel sorry for you. And Don Draper replies back, I don't think of you at all. <laughs> and that's what I kind of feel like when it comes to international critiques of the United States. I, sure, we're the 800-pound gorilla. It's really easy to poke holes because we're kind of ridiculous, admittedly. We're a fairly silly country. And because we're a gigantic country, our ramifications uh, reverberate worldwide. But that being said, you know, I'm not writing into an Australian political podcast, you know? But you can always write in here, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. I say it each and every episode that this only happens because you guys want it to happen. You guys make it happen. You guys have created something collectively. You might never meet each other, but you will know that you did something together. Isn't that a rad thought? That's a really, really, really cool thing. I'm so proud to be at the tip of this spear. I'm so proud to be able to, to be the political content that you guys have manifested from your brains. This jalopy heads east to Georgia uh, in January because you decided you wanted to get a boots-on-the-ground view of the battle for the Senate. Leffler versus Warnock. Ossoff versus Purdue. This is you guys. And the way you've done it is by going over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Getting on the $3 club. Getting those two bonus episodes each and every week. Getting at the $10 here getting your name read at the end i mean again there's nothing else i can do but thank you guys for being a part of this thank you for making this real our guest today is the paul f lazarfeld fellow in sociology at columbia university he writes for a variety of places, up to and including NBC News. He is Musa Al Garbi. Welcome to the show, Musa. 
Well, thank you for having me. All right. You you wrote uh, some some very, very interesting things before the election, specifically about where you were seeing the data in terms of polling uh, with minority communities, uh, black, Latino and, and Asian communities. Uh, can you just catch people up on some of those trends that you saw before the election? Sure. So um, shortly before the election, I wrote uh, two essays actually for uh, NBC Think. The first one showed that um, Trump was consistently losing with white voters across the entirety, actually uh, a trend that became obvious in the Republican primaries in 2016 and has continued uh, throughout his administration. Uh, and what it showed is that rather than being the key to his electoral success, a lot of his sort of racially inflammatory language and policies have alienated white voters consistently from the Republican primaries through likely 2020 from the available polling. Um, uh, so that's the first trend. So the first article looked at this trend, a consistent attrition yeah. among whites with Republican voters over the last four years. Now, at the same time, as Republicans have been consistently bleeding whites under Trump, they've been gaining with minorities. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the second piece with uh, NBC Think showed that um, Trump won, Trump won in 2016, despite stagnant turnout from whites and, reduce, and receiving a slightly smaller vote share than Mitt Romney of, of whites, because he increased his uh, numbers with uh, Hispanics and African-Americans and Asians and racial and ethnic others. So it was minorities rather than whites that helped Trump win in 2016. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that, about why why you would want to look at who shifts rather than the sort of uh, yeah. baseline numbers. Uh, and then as we look at 2018 through 2020, that trend was also pretty continuous. Uh, so the, the pre-election polling going into the 2020 race uh, seemed to suggest that Trump was poised to um, increase his numbers, increase over his 2016 numbers with Hispanics, with um, African-Americans in particular. The Asian picture was a little more mixed, but uh, from the, um, well, actually, depending on the poll you were looking at, the Asian picture was a little more mixed, but from the sort of post-election analyses, it looked like he gained with them as well. Um, and happy to dive into all those things. Sure. Well, before we get into the minority spike, let's let's talk a little bit about the slide with white voters that, again, what was interesting to me is that you trace that back as far as you did to 2015. I, I think in terms of the narrative that we have built in in the mainstream media, the initial place that you go there is never Trumpers or uh, 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 conservatives for whom are turned off by, among other things, his bombast and and racial coded language. Is there any other handle or, or counterintuitive group that we might be missing uh, based on that sort of broad stroke? Well, so that, that was the initial, so during the primaries in 2016, um, that was the one of the core sources of um, resistance, you saw the, the first erosion among sort of relatively well-off whites, highly educated whites, um, uh, gradually suburban whites, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of the same uh, uh, female whites uh, more than men at first, but then later uh, heading into 2018 and 2020, actually the big shifts were among men. And there's a reason for, the, for, for this. Um, 
namely that when you look at the electorate as a whole, at the people who are most concerned about things like, uh, who are most supportive of political correctness, who are most concerned with respectability politics, who who are most concerned with decorum and civility, yeah. you know, wanting the president to be presidential. It's those kinds of, you know, um, middle to upper income white people are the, are the people who are most yeah. concerned about these kinds of things. And so Trump has, so that's part of it. Um, and then a, a lot, and then you saw um, over time that uh, growing numbers of Americans, uh, of white Americans in particular, uh, seem to view Trump as uh, racist, and that um, and that 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 was a drag on his success. So, so for instance, you see in the polling, um, uh, the the sort of attrition with whites actually accelerated dramatically in the wake of the George Floyd protests. Even as his margins with blacks and Hispanics persisted and actually kind of grew, he was bleeding whites at a much faster rate in the aftermath of George of the George Floyd. Um, of George Floyd's murder and how he responded to it. Um, and, <laughs> and you see um, from a number of data points. So for instance, if there's a, a great study that was published in Political Opinion Quarterly that looked at white endorsement of symbolic racism. And we can you know talk a little bit about as useful about how valid of a construct that is and whatever, but <laughs> even bracketing concerns about the construct itself white endorsement of symbolic racism went down over the course of the Trump administration in all of the major national polling. Um, Ashley Hardinia, who wrote this great book on white identity politics, noted in an interview that white people became less likely to identify with whiteness during the Trump administration than they had been previously. Um, so Trump's sort of racialized rhetoric and policies were alienating for white voters and specifically for white voters not really so much with minorities so that yeah that that i think is going to be our pivot point because as there there became more of a conversation about dog whistles and uh, whether or not a, a a certain policy is straight racist or whether or not it's appealing to racist whether rhetoric is appealing to racist uh uh that eroded support with white voters, this other trend kind of continues unabated uh, with black voters. And it's something that I first really noticed during the Super Bowl of all places that uh, way back, you know, 10 years ago uh, uh, during the Super Bowl in, in uh, you know, the early part of this year, February, uh, I was watching for the big commercials and I was at a bar in Des Moines because we were covering the Iowa caucus and Donald Trump spends a jillion dollars on two commercials, one of which is about the economy and spends half the time talking about black and Latino employment. And the second one is all about criminal justice reform. And it was one of those things that to me, as we went further along, it seemed like the Donald Trump campaign, as scattershot as it was, and as we eventually find out fruitless, uh, it was appealing, at least on levels that I had never seen by a Republican candidate, for sure, to be appealing to black and Hispanic communities specifically. And I'm guessing it's because of some of the trends that you saw uh, uh, coming from uh, years and years and years ago. Uh, I guess the largest question that I could ask you now is, 
So if he's so racist, why aren't the races responding? Uh, why why is it why is it the whites that is shedding that are shedding support and not necessarily the communities that are being affected by it? Yeah, uh, I mean, so there are a few things to highlight. One of them is that I, I you know, <laughs> one of the problems with how we talk about racism in the media and academia is that a lot of both actually both newsrooms and and institutions of higher learning are sort of overwhelmingly white spaces. And- um, You don't say. <laughs> and, and, and even the people of, and, and in fact, even the people of color, like when you look at who gets, uh, who gets tenure and tenure track jobs or who staffs, uh, like who, who are the columnists at very, and editors at various newsrooms, they're overwhelmingly also people from Ivy League schools, like a small number of yeah. highly selective schools dominate newsrooms around the country, dominate um, uh, institutions of higher learning, even the professors at schools like, um, uh, you know, University of Kansas or University of Oklahoma or whatever, like a huge share of those tenure and tenure track jobs are people who graduated from schools like Columbia or Berkeley. Um, so, <laughs> so there's sort of these interesting um, disconnects between the people who shape our understanding of different phenomenon and the people who they're describing through their journalism or, or research. Yeah. Um, and so, for instance, in the case of studying racism, uh, a lot of the studies are done by um, uh, white people who study attitudes primarily of white people. So when they want to know whether something is racist, they don't ask minorities, do you find this racist? <laughs> they, yeah. they say, hmm, I interpret this action as, I, I interpret this as racist. Let me see if it resonates with white people. If it seems to resonate with white people and I think it's racist, then it must be racist. Um, and that sounds like a crazy way to study this, but that's honestly how a lot of studies are conducted. And um, what's interesting is when you ask people of color, when you present them with things that are supposed to be racist and ask them, do you find this racist? Um, and in large numbers, they don't. So uh, the Cato Institute, for instance, um, presented black and Hispanic uh, people with cases of canonical microaggressions. So, okay. you know, um, and asked them, do you find these offensive? Overwhelmingly, like, uh, 75% or more for almost all of them said, no, they're not offensive at all. Um, the racial dog whistles, usually they don't bother to ask, like they don't test whether racial dog whistles appeal to um, African-Americans or Hispanics because the very concept of the racial dog whistle, like how it's conceptualized yeah. is as something that would resonate with whites and mobilize whites. So it doesn't even occur to them, a lot of scholars who study this, to see if they resonate with people of color. But one scholar broke that trend and in a recent study uh, leading up to the election presented black and Hispanic uh, people with racial dog whistles presented by Trump. And it turned out they resonated more with Hispanics than whites and just as much with African-Americans as whites. Um, so they didn't uniquely, uh, they're supposed to be messages that uniquely are salient with white people to mobilize them or whatever. 
not only were they not uniquely salient with whites, they were actually more resonant with people of color than whites on, on balance. Um, so this is just a problem with how we study racism. Uh, and in fact, uh, I wrote a paper for um, the journal, the American Sociologist called Race and the Race for the White House on Social Research in the Age of Trump. And I showed that a lot of the research that's done on Trump and Trump supporters um, suffers from these kinds of systematic problems, uh, prejudicial study design, um, asymmetrical analysis. So you study Trump voters one way, Clinton voters another way, whites one way, minorities another way, yeah. women one way, men another way. Um, and uh, a lot of other problems, happy to talk about, but uh, yeah. Sure, so uh, uh, I guess that is a, a fundamental description of something that I have long kind of uh, uh, wondered about. The, the idea that the very conceptualization of our data might be leading us at least to not get a full picture, you know, and, and when we look at, uh, you know, something that I got a lot when, when I was describing some of these trends through like the Republican national convention, for example, was, uh, largely white people saying, uh, Oh, well, Trump isn't really appealing to black people. He's not really appealing to Hispanics. He's appealing to white people to believe that they're not racist because they're putting black and Hispanic people on the stage for which I'm like, well, uh, maybe, but also if I'm from a conservative leaning black or Hispanic community, I'm happy that somebody that looks like me is up on the stage, like whether or not that's the, you know, uh, I think there, there is this very, very uh, uh, rigid understanding that I think is is very political because politics is about leading you down very narrow paths that eventually lead to you voting or not voting for one person or another. D do you think that some of that thought has become uh, so intertwined with our scholastic understanding of these things that that we're not getting maybe the 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 uh, 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 as illuminating a picture as we could? You know what I think it is, honestly, I think the, the main problem is sort of more structural because, um, so, so for instance, think about peer review. So peer review is supposed to be an adversarial process where you have people with different backgrounds and priors and interests um, evaluating work together and that helps correct for biases and shortcomings that people have. Yeah. But in a world where everyone shares the same axioms, the same worldviews, the same biases. So if everyone is a bunch of people who hate Trump and support whoever the Democrat is, then rather than correcting biases, you can actually reinforce and amplify biases yeah. through these same uh, systems. And the same, same, same holds for journalism and other fields. So for instance, and here's how, here's how it plays out. A lot of scholars have a hard time and this goes into like the, from the very foundation of how they try to lay out their reporting or their research. They have a hard time understanding how anyone could reasonably vote for Trump. Like how could someone vote for Trump unless there was something wrong with them? And so they approach the, um, because they can't understand, they like it's beyond them to understand. They don't have the imagination to understand how someone could vote for Trump unless there was something wrong with them. They just assume, uh, they, they 
carry out the experiment looking basically for what kind of deficit or pathology best explains Trump voters. So there's whole studies that are literally designed like this. What best explains why someone would vote for Trump? Is it that they're more racist or sexist or authoritarian <laughs> or uneducated or poor, right? Just like all the yeah. options are bad. Yeah. Now, if, if you did a similar study that was like, why do people vote for Hillary Clinton? Is it that they're communists or they hate America? Yeah. Right? We would immediately go, foul on the play. That's a prejudicial yeah. study. Um, but that's normal for how people study Trump. Um, and it's it's part of a bigger problem. Like everyone thinks that their own views are correct. That's why we hold our views. <laughs> and yeah. so when we think that, when we observe people holding different views, the sort of natural inclination is to think, well, I'm probably right and they're probably wrong. And um, and that that colors it. Uh, so it's not it's not something that's sort of, unique to to studying Trump and and uh, and his supporters, but it's something that's especially salient here because there's almost no one who holds different views in this case. Even in the New York Times or something, uh, they have you know a, ha- a smattering of conservative columnists like Russ Dohat or David Brooks or Brett Stevens, but none of those people are like actual Trump supporters. No. They're people who like, maybe hold their nose and pull the lever for Trump. And no, there is, there, yeah, the, 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 right. And the, 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 the times doesn't have anybody that was out on one of them boat parades. Like, you know, David Brooks wasn't absolutely. shotgunning a beer on Lake Havasu with a big Trump Pence flag behind him. Uh, that was, that was not happening. And ditto with academia, you know, there's not too many social researchers that are Republicans or conservatives, but the ones that are there are not like, are not like Trump supporting. There, there. A lot of them were never Trumpers or or whatever. Um, there's like, I can think of maybe five, uh, kind of, like academics who were explicitly advocating for Trump, like Victor Davis Hanson or Patrick Deneen or Amy Wax, and they've all been kind of rendered pariahs <laughs> in virtue of, of taking that position. Uh, and so this is a problem where pretty much everyone's studying Trump and why people vote for Trump, hate Trump, and don't understand, it's like beyond the realm of their possibility uh, of understanding how someone could reasonably vote for Trump, and they don't really know any Trump voters. And so this is a problem, you know? Um, it, it colors uh, how we how we study the issue, both for journalists and academics alike. You know, I, I was at a function with a bunch of uh, uh journalism friends of mine that have all gone on to do awesome things and all work in the media. And, uh, it was right after Trump got elected and, uh, you know, we're all just BSing cause we've been friends forever. And the conversation is like, wow. Yeah. You know, a lot of racists in America, Trump got elected. And I'm like, well, you know, I think we certainly have a problem with race. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily new, but all of them, all of them were racist. Like not anybody like voted for taxes. Cause that's kind of the reason why most people vote for Republicans, at least my entire life. Like, I don't know why uh, uh, that would necessarily not be the case between Hillary Clinton and the person who is not Hillary Clinton and would probably is promising to lower taxes. But uh, there is, I think a, a, an, an orthodoxy there. So let me ask you this then, although obviously part of this is systemic within the structure of academia, 
was this magnified? And let's put aside whether or not Trump runs again, and this is a persistent problem going forward. Let's imagine that Donald Trump quietly retires, uh, you know, fantastically compared to his you know entire history, that he just sort of goes away. Was this a problem because Trump was openly hostile to the media, was openly hostile to academia in a way that is is even explosive for Republicans that are by and large at least arm's length from the media and academia in general. Yeah, I think there's sort of two important things to know about the sort of unusual reaction to Trump. One of them uh, being, like I already talked about, uh, the, the kind of people who who uh, do media work and, acad and academic work and um, run bureaucracies are the very whites who are against sort of most uh, who most value things like decorum and civility in general. Yeah. So I think Trump's sort of whole tone and approach is just sort of grotesque. Like it, it generates a visceral reaction, even setting aside the... So that's one thing. And then the second thing, as you rightly noted, is that Trump basically declared war on the professional managerial class, as uh, uh, Barbara Eichenreich called them. So bureaucrats, um, journalists, academics. He's trying to defund... Um, you know, different um, different lines of, uh, of social research and other kinds of research. He's disparaging uh, experts, disparaging the media, disparaging bureaucrats. And so there's sort of a, um, a lot of them view themselves as being in some kind of existential struggle uh, in some sense with Trump. Uh, and his administration for the legitimacy of their own and the continued viability of their own sort of enterprise. Uh, and, and so that that generated, I think, uh, part of the uh, preoccupation. It's nuts. Um, for instance, I did an analysis, um, two analyses in the Columbia Journalism Review, one looking at how Trump was discussed in the media and in, in print media, and one that was looking at how Trump was discussed in uh, television media. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy how obsessed the media was with Trump. So if you look at, for instance, in 2018, Trump was the number three most used word in the New York Times, other than like, if you, if you bracket out words like, and the, yeah, I was going to say, or, yeah, yeah. Know, take, take like, out, take out and, and the, and, and the period. <laughs> and, and you have yeah, yeah. Trump as but, number three. In terms of substantive. Yeah. And what's crazy is on average, uh, any article published by the New York Times on average mentioned Trump directly two to three times and indirectly one to two more times. And that include and that that corpus included everything, it included sports, weather, fashion, style, food, <laughs> yeah. the op-ed pages. And this was the average. So Trump had become kind of the lens through which people viewed other stories and it, it, like he became the lens through which we viewed reality um, and, and discussed reality. If something is happening in another, in, in uh, Zimbabwe, you know, the story would be like, yeah, you know, this is happening in Zimbabwe. And by the way, Trump said a bunch of countries in Africa were whole countries, <laughs> you yeah. know, like they find some way to shoehorn some mention of Trump into, um, into anything, into stories about anything. And the same is true when you look at um, television coverage of Trump as well. It's completely unlike any other administration on record. Uh, like the media was obsessed with Trump.
So let me ask you this then. There have been a lot of conversations past the election, while a lot of these trends that you've discussed have borne out. Uh, uh, I think that there is ample evidence to say that it was not the inner cities that elected Joe Biden. Uh, in many uh, of them, there was flat turnout or or a, a rise in uh, uh, Trump support in, in some dramatically, like Miami-Dade, which normally, I mean, I'm from Florida, so I know those politics very well. Democrats, if they win statewide, they get fat on votes in Miami, Broward, and Palm Beach, and he was within single digits in Miami-Dade, which is unheard of for a Republican to do that well. It was the suburban white people that elected Joe Biden. So here's my question. Is this a Trump thing or as many Republican senators who by and large did well down ballot, same thing with uh, Republicans in Congress, is this an inflection point that the Democratic Party is drifting into more of a technocratic, college-educated uh, uh, party and the GOP, possibly because of Trump, uh, has become more of a working-class party and, and the GOP will continue to cater more to these audiences? It's both. So, um, so the trends with minorities, I think, are primarily due to uh, frustration with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Whereas the trends with whites, I think, are due to Trump. And I'll briefly explain this. So the trends that you see with minorities actually predate Trump. Uh, basically, starting uh, with every election after Obama was elected, every midterm, every um, uh, every general election, uh, Democrats saw attrition with the very groups that were supposed to be key to their electoral success, including African-Americans, Hispanics, women, young people. I wrote a, uh, an essay on this called The Democratic Party is Facing a Demographic Crisis. Uh, in 2017, shortly after Trump was elected. Yeah. And so the election of Trump there was more continuous with trends over the preceding decade rather than being something unusual, Trump's Trump's numbers with minorities. It's actually consistent with the trend over the preceding decade. And gotcha. that trend continued when Trump was in the White House. Now, uh, with the, the erosion of whites with the GOP, though, that does seem to be uh, specifically related to Trump, uh, you started seeing it again in the primaries with people reacting to Trump, with whites in particular, upper SES whites especially, reacting to Trump in a very negative way. He got the lowest vote share of any Republican, of any winning Republican uh, 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 GOP candidate in the primaries, uh, like in on record, I think. Um, he did not have strong support, especially from white people during the primaries. And, uh, and this continued um, through the 2016 general election and into the uh, 2018, 2020. What's interesting when you look at 2020 and 2018, at which white voters sort of flipped the state, uh, I mean, flipped the, 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 those races, it was primarily moderate and independent voters that migrated. Um, and, uh, and understanding that, is actually helps clarify some of what you saw with down ballot races. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that the American electorate rallied behind the Democratic Party and uh, in general, they were rejecting Trump. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and so when you look at uh, at Congress, for instance, Republicans are set to actually gain seats in the House. Yeah. And maintain control of the Senate. When you look at state races. 
Republicans flipped one governorship in Montana, Democrats flipped zero governorships. When you look at state legislatures, Republicans flipped both chambers in New Hampshire. Democrats are looking like they might not flip any chambers in any state anywhere in the country, despite yeah. winning the White House by you know uh, more than five million votes at current count. Um, and this is uh, and so overall, the Republican Party is actually in a stronger position now than they were going into the election, save the White House, and um, and actually they'll probably. And this matters. So, so for instance, the flipping of the state legislatures matters. Uh, we're about to be going into uh, our decennial um, redistricting yeah. uh, following the census. The Republicans control one more entire state that they'll be drawing the, the maps for, New Hampshire, uh, plus the ones that they already had. Um, looking at the House, usually when an administration takes power, they lose seats in the House during their inaugural midterm when a, when there's a party change. Yeah, yeah. Um, on average, about uh, 35 seats. So if Biden conforms to the historical average, um, probably Republicans will take control of the House in 2022, and they'll have control of the Senate. Uh, the Republic, you know. Uh, so overall, it was a good day for Republicans bracketing the the White House. Um, and part of the reason why you see that divergent trend with gains for Republicans everywhere else, except, and then a, a narrow loss in the White House, is because it was independent and moderate voters who shifted the race towards Biden, uh, and men in particular, white men in particular. One last question for you, because uh, I think you have some really interesting numbers on this, uh, and it's been in the news over the last week. Jim Clyburn of South Carolina has been very vocal in his opposition to the phrase defund the police, uh, slamming it as sloganeering akin to burn, baby, burn. Uh, you in uh, you wrote before the election that the way that largely the white commentariat class and uh, uh, people in our, in our modern culture the people that respond to defund the police might not be the same uh, opinion based on polling of the actual communities that we are talking about defunding police forces. Can you, can you explain some of those numbers? Yeah. Uh, so one thing that's very clear uh, in the surveys is that uh, say African-Americans, for instance, they do support police reform, right? They want criminal justice reform, uh, but they want, but the, they tend to favor kind of um, moderate, uh, criminal justice reform. So when asked, for instance, do you want the same number of police, more police or less police in your community? Overwhelmingly, they say the same or more. Um, yeah. If you ask them, uh, do you support defunding the police? They overwhelmingly say no. Um, and, you know, there's, there's sort of, <laughs> there's a few dimensions to this. One of them being that some of the people who are advocating for a sort of radical change don't necessarily have skin in the game, right? So they don't live in communities that are uh, unsafe. They live in, you know, places like I live, Morningside Heights, <laughs> yeah. um, which is, you know, uh, so that so it's easy for them to say, you know, defund the police, uh, get, you know, get do this, do that, do the other thing, because they're not going to be the ones experiencing this change and if yeah, it doesn't if it, go if it, yeah plan, if it if it goes their wrong lives are fine. sure it's like like if if this goes right then yes awesome everybody would be happier or better but 
they're not the one that's going to be there day one in case this isn't going awesome. Absolutely. And there's a whole, like, a vast literature on how when you have this kind of disconnect between the people who are designing and implementing policies and the people who pay the costs if they go wrong, uh, yeah. these kinds of well-intentioned programs uh, and, and policies often cause immense harm when you don't have enough feedback from the people who are actually, you know, on the front lines of the policies. Uh, so that is, uh, is that there is that a lot of the people actually in communities plagued by crime and insecurity and things like that uh, have a different opinion. Uh, another dimension, though, is that uh, African-Americans, Hispanics and uh, other groups, a lot of immigrant communities, for instance, actually tend to be more religious and culturally conservative on average than whites. So um, so culturally conservative messages about law and order about um, uh, you know things like this actually resonate with them, and uh, you know, uh, and and you see this, for instance, even with questions on immigration. So while Hispanic Americans favor are generally supportive of immigration, legal immigration, they're actually yeah. more concerned than whites or African Americans with illegal immigration, and they strongly and they tend to strongly support um border enforcement in the same way the American Americans support law enforcement um and uh and so this is again the problem is that you have <laughs> you have sort of white elites and a handful of elites of color who are not necessarily representative of so like Tennessee Coates is not necessarily representative of the typical black American but if we want to yeah. know what do black people want, what do black people think, what do black people support, rather than going and just, you know, asking ordinary black people what they think or support, they go, oh, let's see what Coates has to say. Oh, Coates says, you know, radical change now. Let's do that. Um, and, and this is the problem is you have these kinds of representatives, people who are held up as representative of different groups that are not actually representative of those groups. And so it's important to to really um, pay attention when you're trying to design these kinds of policies, uh, to look at who, what the people who are supposed to be benefiting from these policies, what do they actually want? Not yeah. what's convenient for my narrative, not what do these people who are my allies who happen to be black or Hispanics say, but like, what do the ordinary people want? And I think that, line that continental drift is going to be something that we continue to see that will shape our politics going forward musa algarbi thank you so much uh this has been an awesome and illuminating conversation uh we hope to have you back on sometime soon yeah thank you for having me and that'll be it for us today I would love to thank our Titanic $10 tier, including Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Crookie McCrookface, Justin, Ryan, Egan, D Laser, Matt, who called from labor and delivery, Starfleet for Biden, Jason with Magnolia, Delta Credit Card Processing, Catherine, nobody expects the Dismal Science Podcast. 
Katie, vote for Joe Biden 2020. Rob, vote for Gloria Young 2020. Thanks for voting for Trump 2020. Martin, government unfiltered. Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Dick News Show. Adam, David, Jacob, DL. Stephen, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Dustin, David, Ed, the Goose, just another pilot. Mike McLaughlin. The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen, Summers, Jay Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. As per usual, the show uh, has starred me, Justin Robert Young. It's been edited in Oakland, California by Dog and Pony Show Audio. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, head on over to your email device of choice and send us an email at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. By the way, if you'd like links to all of the articles that Musa uh, referenced, he actually sent me a, a great little catalog of links there, and so it's going to be in the show notes wherever you find this program. Of course, you can always find the program at takepoliticsseriously.com, and that's where you can go to support the show as well. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they're talking about politics, but this is the only show that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.